Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're looking at the impact of COVID-19 on the Irish economy. In the second half of the show, you'll hear from Gwen Layden, whose family owned the much-loved George Street Arcade in Dublin. She explains her strategy to help tenants survive the impact of COVID and the financial hit taken by her family. But I'll begin by looking at the broad impact of the pandemic on our economy. It's almost exactly one year since the Irish economy was locked down by the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar to try and contain the spread of coronavirus in the country. So how have businesses and specific industries been affected? What does the future hold? How do you reopen a business that has been closed for more than 12 months? When will the government's financial supports be withdrawn? Who should we allow fail when those supports are cut? And how will the state pay the final bill for COVID? I put these and other questions to economists Jim Power and Mark Paul, business affairs correspondent of the Irish Times. I began by asking Mark to recap the past year and the devastating impact of COVID-19 on Irish businesses. Well, how bad it's been, Kieran, really depends on what sort of business you are. I mean, if you're an online business or if, if your business has been able to trade well with your staff working from home, it probably hasn't been too bad of a year. But if you work uh, or, or if your business is in, uh, particularly in the sectors of retail, hospitality and tourism, um, you've done very poorly over the year. And in retail, it also depends on what type of business you are. I mean, it hasn't been uniformly terrible for all retailers. Some retailers have done very well. Um, um, last year, any retailer selling home furnishings or furniture did well. Pet shops did well. Anybody selling fitness goods did well. Um, but, but most other non-essential retailers have done terribly. But the sector that has been hit hardest um, by a mile um, above all the Theaters is, is hospitality and tourism, um, bars, restaurants, hotels, airlines, um, anybody providing tourism services. Um, most of their staff are on the pandemic unemployment payment. Um, and, and probably the, the difficult thing for those businesses at the moment is that they don't have a pathway really out of this yet, not a clear pathway out of this. Um, so it's all very much doom and gloom in that sector. Um, and, uh, you know, throughout the course of, of, of 2020, businesses in, in the tourism industry, they maybe had about a, a better eight to 10 week window um, from late June until the end of August, where they traded and traded quite well um, on domestic tourism. Um, but once, um, um, I suppose, once the weather started to turn and once the days became shorter and the kids went back to school, so that all went downhill. Um, and, you know, with the exception of three weeks at Christmas, um, and that sector had a, an awful winter. Um, and that awful winter 
the real danger of that awful winter um, is that um, um, and when they emerge from it, they'll be so indebted, these uh, these companies, that they'll never be able to stand up straight and, and, and have a run again. That is their worry. Um, so uh, another factor over last year has been that all of these businesses have been kept alive on state life support um, through transfusions of public cash, taxpayer cash into these businesses to try and keep them alive. And, and the direct result of that is that we've actually seen less insolvencies over the past year than you would over a normal year. Less or about the same, um, and, and just slightly less perhaps. Um, um, so, but, but, you know, obviously it's a situation where the economy is on its knees, so it's a slightly unreal situation. A lot of these businesses are being kept in an undead position, almost zombified, um, and we really won't know what happens to a lot of these businesses until we try and chart some sort of a way out of the pandemic and the business supports are taken away and then we'll see which of these sure. businesses stand up and which fall over. Sure, yeah, okay. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll maybe touch on that a little later on. Um, Jim, there's been one part of the economy which has been absolutely flying and that has been exports and multinational exports in, in particular. And I think if you, depending on how you measure uh, the Irish economy and activity here, we actually grew last year. I think we were the only country in the European Union to, uh, to post economic growth last year because of that multinational performance. Well, yes, Karen. It was um, it, it was definitely an economy of two distinct parts last year, and that is reflected in virtually every piece of data you look at. The national accounts showed that GDP expanded by three point four percent last year, which, as you say, would make us the only economy in the EU to record positive GDP growth. However, uh, as you well know, um, in the context of Ireland, GDP needs to be seriously adjusted to strip out the distortions caused by aircraft leasing activities, um, intellectual property transfers, and so on. And when you strip all that stuff out, as the CSO has sought to do over the last three or four years, you find that modified domestic demand, that's more a reflection of what's happening in the domestic economy, fell by 5.4%. And within that, consumer spending, for example, down by 9%, with spending on goods down by over 5%, and spending on services down by almost 12%. So the domestic demand part of the economy, a lot of it was very, very weak. Um, but then you look at the performance of the multinational sector, um, very, very strong. You know, we know that l- last year, um, the modern side of our industrial base, that would be dominated by multinationals. It expanded its output by 7.3%. But the traditional, those would be the indigenous companies here, their output declined by 5.2%. If you look at the breakdown of the pandemic unemployment payment, you get a very strong sectoral perspective on what's happening and reflecting exactly what Mark has said, you know, um, non-essential retail parts of it, we've seen significant job layoffs there. Um, Anything to do with the hospitality, accommodation, food services, absolutely dreadful stuff. And of course, um, construction activity, it was kind of open for much of last year. But since the 1st of January this year, you know, it is in level five lockdown. So um, it, it's very much a mixed picture in terms of the sectoral thing. But um, the if you look at the tax take last year, uh, there's lots of stuff here that tells you pretty much the same story. But if you look at the tax take, for example, um, overall taxes were down by about 3.6%, which in the context of what was going on, that's a remarkable performance. Corporation tax, very strong, 
reflecting the strong multinational sector. Um, income tax take was down by just 1%. And that is quite extraordinary, given that at its peak last May, we had 598,000 workers on the pandemic unemployment payment. But what it's telling us, in my view, is that um, a lot of sectors um, that have not been affected by COVID, such as the multinational sector, professional services, financial services, um, and so on, the workers and the public sector, indeed, the workers in those sectors have continued to earn and um yeah, and they are the ones, given the progressive nature of our income tax system, they are the ones that pay the bulk of income tax. Whereas those workers who have been most adversely affected in retail, in um, accommodation, food services and so on, they tend to be relatively low paid. They don't pay much income tax in any event. So very much a dual economy. Um, but and, and really how you view 2020 will be totally dependent on what sector of the economy you're actually working in or engaged in. Jim, just in terms of trade performance, was there a bit of Brexit stockpiling going on as well? Uh, yeah, there, there was. Um, we, we saw in October, November, December, you know, there was a significant pickup in agri-food exports, for example. And that's because UK retailers fearing supply chain problems um, were stocking up. And I suppose the, the corollary of that is that you would expect in the early months of this year um, some slowdown to occur, you know, as as they sort of try and get rid of the stock they've built up. Uh, but yeah, Brexit most definitely had an impact. But I think the thing that stands out most of all in the export performance last year was the chemical and pharmaceutical sector, which now accounts for just under 66% of our total merchandise exports. Um, it saw growth of over 13%. And that goes back to the point as well. You know, the multinational sector um, had a boom year in 2020 in the Irish economy. And thankfully, in terms of supporting employment, in terms of supporting tax revenues, that did provide um, a reasonable anchor for um, the, the overall economy. And it is interesting, you know, given the huge and very rapid deterioration in the public finances, because coming into 2020, uh, pre-COVID, we were forecasting a, a, next, a general government surplus of around two and a half billion. In the event, we delivered a deficit of over 19 billion. But that turnaround was almost exclusively due to spending rather than taxation. Yeah, sure. And the, and the spending the spending continues, Jim, doesn't it? And it looks like it's going to continue for some time to come as well, because at the Eurogroup meeting yesterday, which was chaired by Pascal Dunhu, our Minister for Finance, they've decided that the fiscal supports that have been in place for the last while should continue, possibly into 2022, or as long as necessary uh, to allow the recovery take hold. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, what's the final bill going to be for Ireland? Um, it, it is quite extraordinary, but I, I think it's a sensible strategy. Or in other words, there is no other choice uh, because we, we don't know when the economy is going to start reopening. Um, and, you know, it, it obviously really does, obviously depends on the vaccine rollout and how the virus performs. But the sense is, you know, there will be serious restrictions in place for the foreseeable future. And then even after we start to open up, 
you know, business volumes for certain sectors will be very, very weak. And it'll take a long time, certainly into 2022, before we would hope to approach anything like normality. So in the meanwhile, I think it's important um, for the Irish government and indeed every other EU government to continue to support those businesses uh, because there is no choice. Um, and obviously mistakes will be made in the sense that businesses that were not viable anyway will be supported. But I think on balance, um, it is the correct strategy, but it's a big, big bill. You know, we ran a deficit of over 19 billion last year. We're going to run a deficit probably in excess of 20 billion this year. So there is an absolutely massive fiscal cost and it's also a massive addition to our national debt. And if you measure our national debt as a percentage of GDP, no problem. It looks very, very well controlled. But if you measure it, which you should do, as a percentage of modified economic activity or as we call it, GNI star, um, we're up there at 114, 115% and rising. So we're building up a significant debt legacy. Um, and, you know, there's, there's no other way of describing it. And um, the big question is, and I suppose Pascal Donoghue um, at the Eurogroup meeting was sort of saying that, um, you know, eventually we will have to start bringing debt under control again. So what that means for sort of 2022 and beyond remains to be seen. Um, I would hope we will not see um, a, reverse, a reversion to the sort of tax austerity after 2008, 2009. Um, what I really think is important is to try and get growth back on track as quickly as possible because economic growth generates tax revenues, puts downward pressure on spending and improves the public finances. Whereas if you engage in austerity, um, you know, it damages economic growth which damages tax revenues and um, spending pressures. So uh, I think there's no choice here. If somebody had said to me 15 months ago that this is the sort of conversation we'd be having, I'd be shocked and horrified. But that's the reality um, of what has happened in the last 12 months. Mark, those supports will be withdrawn, whether it's this year or early next year, maybe. What happens to businesses then? You mentioned that a lot of businesses are kind of in a zombie mode almost at the minute. And when these supports begin to be withdrawn, we'll see whether they can stand on their own two feet or not. There's probably going to be a lot of a lot of businesses go out of business. Yes, there will be, I suppose. Look, I guess for a lot of them, it's also going to depend upon um, the attitude of the banks. Um, obviously, there is no blanket rule now for any anymore for the banks and, and, and to deal with debt. Earlier on in the pandemic, um, um, you know, there was forbearance was uh, was a national policy in, in, in relation to the banks, um, but that ran out last September um, and it hasn't come back. Um, so what will happen to these businesses? It's, it's really difficult to tell. I suppose it may depend on where some of them are located. Um, if they're in, located in areas um, and where um, hospitality activity, domestic um, and demand um, 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 where that will come back very quickly, well, uh, well, perhaps those businesses will muddle through. Um, it will depend upon the level of debt that they've that they've uh, put, put together over the last year, um, and and as I said, and whether the banks will deal with that. And then you know, it'll also depend a lot on landlords and the property sector. Um, in the retail sector, in particular, a lot of businesses there are carrying um, uh, 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 rent arrears, and um, some of them are carrying rent arrears from the first lockdown. Um, a lot of businesses are carrying. Renters later on, and 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 really, that's 
I think a big bubble that's going to blow up in the retail sector at some stage after um, um, after the, the the economy reopens, because when businesses in retail are generating cash flow again, when they're capable of paying some rent, well then I think there'll need to be some sort of a denouement towards this uh, problem with landlords, because obviously landlords have um, their own bills to pay as well with banks. Um, so that's a big problem that's going to need to be dealt with. The retail sector wants it dealt with with some sort of a central arbitration system. Um, and that looks to be legally difficult um, um, for the government to get involved in something like that. But unless there is some sort of a centralized forum, some sort of a centralized clearinghouse to deal with that issue, um, that's something that I can see causing trouble uh, for the retail sector um, for years to come. Apart from that, um, for the tourism ministry look it's really about uh, consumer confidence internationally when will you know what sort of aviation capacity will ireland have left when all of this uh, is finished in order to rebuild um, um, the tourism sector one of the the interesting things of the last financial crash um, um, that took place from 2008 to 2010-11 was from 2011 onwards, um, the tourism sector actually really began to drive a lot of the recovery. Um, and it put an awful lot of people back and work very, very quickly. But it did this on the basis of expanded aviation capacity. And we might necessarily have that luxury this time around because every single country um, um, in Europe is going to be competing for the same aviation capacity once that gets going. Um, so that's going to be a big, big problem there. Um, so there's so many different moving parts to this, Kieran. Really, I think I think the, you know the biggest fools at the moment are the ones who are trying to predict exactly what's going to happen uh, in the months and years ahead because this pandemic ha- at every stage has outpaced every projection um, and its effect on the economy, its effect on society at large has been um, underestimated at every corner and at every turn. And, and it's entirely possible that we're doing the same now. Um, so I think, um, you know, the, the, the real big, uh, 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 you know, most obvious thing to say is that we really do not know what impact this is going to have on the economy in the medium to long term. Um, 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 but hopefully it can be ameliorated with, uh, uh, with continued state support for as long as that's necessary and as long as the state is capable of doing that. And Mark, if you're a wet pub, that is a pub that doesn't serve food, you've been closed since March of last year. There's been no uh, reopening for you at all. <clears throat> and I'm just wondering how you reopen a business like that whenever the day comes. I mean, the government, we have a chink of light at the end of the tunnel and that we have a vaccine rollout program. The government is hoping that by September, the majority of the, the vast majority of the population uh, will have received their vaccinations. Uh, and so, you know, the economy can begin to open up again, hopefully. So it could be September or it could be even later for wet pubs. So how do you reopen a wet pub that's been closed for a year and a half plus? I, I would think that, you know, I mean, I worked in the hospitality industry um, for, for a number of years before I went into journalism, a long number of years, and I did a lot of um, fresh business reopenings. And there's a sugar high that comes at reopening or, or opening a business. Um, and, and I think once the restrictions are lifted, there will be a sugar high and a lot of pubs will reopen um, 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 in towns and villages all over the country. But it's what happens six months or seven months or eight months after that that I think is going to be most important. Before the pandemic arrived, um, there was already a long running trend for over a decade in Ireland of pubs closing, wet pubs closing outside of Dublin. Um, and, I mean, alcohol consumption per head in Ireland has actually been on the decline for about two decades. Um, um, so it'll be interesting to see when um, um, normal services resumed in that regard. But how can these businesses reopen? 
if Dublin can get back on its feet fairly quickly, if 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 people can go back into offices in the city centre <clears throat> reasonably quickly, if short haul tourism from the UK and, and elsewhere can come back reasonably quickly because of the pandemic or because of um, um, vaccines and so on, well then you know wet pubs in Dublin and in other tourism hotspots and in other visitor hotspots should come back relatively quickly. But outside of that, the sort of you know the wet pub that you see along the side of a national route when you're driving from um, one provincial town to another. Um, um, country pubs and um, villages where you have you know five pubs and maybe only a, a clientele for three and um, that's where we're going to see an awful lot of difficulty and and, and something that I've gone back to again and again uh, is, is warnings that have come from the central bank from Gabriel McClough and um, the governor of the central bank and and he was talking I think about the pub industry and specifically the wet pub industry although he didn't name it and um, where he warned that at some stage the government was going to have to make a judgment about how moral it was to keep throwing taxpayers' money after businesses that just weren't sustainable anyway. As I said, a lot of pubs were closing anyway. Um, um, so um, we're going to have to... It, it's going to take some foresight and I think some skill and some insight on the government's part and the industry's part to recognise when we're at that time uh, 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 when... Um, 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 the government needs to make a choice as to you know when to stop supporting um, 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 businesses in the hospitality industry and when they can stand on their own two feet. I don't know how they're going to be able to recognise that time, um, but it's going to be very difficult for those wet pubs um, to reopen. And really, the distinction between wet pubs and dry pubs only came about in the first place, um, 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 sort of on an artificial basis. I mean, if, if you cast your mind back to last summer when we were having a reopening debate in, in May and June, um, the advice from Neffet and, and the clear desire of Neffet and of the chief medical officer and, and of some of the public health officials was that no pubs should reopen and whether they were wet or dry. And there was an absolute outcry on the behalf of the pub industry at the time, of the restaurant industry at the time, who said that an awful lot of, of members, for example, of the Restaurant Association, are actually pubs that serve food in the same manner as restaurants. And they argued they were being discriminated against. And really, there was no argument against that. And that's where this spurious definition, this spurious split between wet pubs and dry pubs was born. It was to try and repair some of the damage of that approach where the government just wanted to shut all pubs. Um, so look, the pub industry is going to face a long, long, long way back. It's really going to depend on where those pubs are located. It's also going to depend upon consumer trends. Um, because we're all used now to uh, to sitting in on a Saturday night and having you know dreary cocktail parties um, um, with our friends uh, a couple of towns and, and, and one Zoom screen away. Um, I'd, will consumer behaviour pick up? Uh, you know, aside from the sugar high of are you hoping uh, in the immediate aftermath of are you hoping will consumer behaviour pick up and go back to the trends that we saw immediately before the pandemic? I really don't know. It's really difficult to predict um, and what people are going to do in retail. Obviously, that's going to change with. With retail shopping, but in hospitality and tourism, will we still go out into packed pubs, into packed restaurants, doing that little shimmy body shuffle past people that you need to get to the bar, three deep at a bar, everybody coughing, sneezing into one place? I don't know if those trends will return to the same degree. Um, and there's going to be an awful lot of long-term change arising out of this pandemic. Yeah, there sure will. It will be interesting to see what those what trends emerge. And um, Jim Power, there's going to be a big bill for the government to pay uh, whenever this ends. It's probably going to be of the order of 50 billion euro plus. Does that mean higher taxes for us as citizens? Well, uh, yeah, lo lo logically, you would have thought so, Karen. Um, there was some people, I suppose, pre-pandemic who had a, a sort of a naive view that the personal tax burden would be gradually eased over the years in, in various budgets. And I suppose 
the political system, or at least the incumbent government and the last one, you know, w- would have sort of pushed that sort of longer term agenda, particularly the Fine Gael party. Um, I think that was always fanciful because if you look at Ireland's demographics um, and the implications of that for future health spending and pensions and so on, um, I think it was inconceivable that the personal tax burden was going to be eased. And now we find ourselves 12 months down the road, um, totally changed situation, huge budget deficit, building up significant government debt. We still have all of those demographic and pension and health factors in the backdrop, which have probably actually been exacerbated by this crisis. So the pressure on public spending long term is going to be significant. So where, how does the government respond to that? Well, it it will have to respond on the tax side. So you can certainly say with safety, there will be no easing of the tax burden. And it's just a question of how um, the tax burden will be increased to try and eventually get the public finances back into order. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think the secret of prudent fiscal management in normal times is to try and get your revenues to match your expenditure as best you can. So growing revenues will be really, really important. I'm hoping for the foreseeable future, as I said, that the focus on growing revenues will be uh, uh, driven by economic growth rather than increasing taxes. But eventually, um, I think some future government will have to look at um, where we broaden the tax base, how we build up the tax base again to try and get our debt level to a more sustainable situation. Sorry, I was going to say we've, we've been helped by the fact that uh, interest rates globally have been rock bottom uh, in negative territory in some cases. But we've got this uh, extraordinary stimulus plan coming in the U- United States. Joe Biden planning to pump $1.9 trillion dollars worth of stimulus into the US economy in the coming uh, few years. What What's that going to do for uh, global markets and for the um, sovereign bond uh, rates that we've uh, we've seen over the last decade or so? Yeah, the, the, the fiscal stimulus in the United States is absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, we've had three significant packages now, well in excess of $5 trillion, roughly 24% of GDP is being pumped into the US economy through fiscal stimulus. And in fact, the next thing Biden wants to do is to deliver a significant capital investment stimulus into the economy. Um, Europe is well behind the United States in terms of that fiscal stimulus. It's less than half the US response as a percentage of GDP. But nevertheless, it's still, you know, there's a lot of debt being built up all around the place. And um, one thing we've seen in the last 12 months is fiscal policy and monetary policy have been operating hand in glove. So in other words, there was an acceptance everywhere, even in Europe, the fiscal rules were relaxed. Governments were encouraged to spend as much money as it takes to try and keep those businesses alive, to try and support households during the pandemic. And at the same time, central banks were engaging in massive quantitative easing. And indeed, the European Central Bank last week pledged to up its monthly bond buying program. It has a 1.9 trillion euro package 
of bond buying on the table at the moment. So the purpose of that is to keep government borrowing costs as low as possible to facilitate the deficits that are building up everywhere. Um, And that's really, really important. But over the last few weeks, we've started to see some nervousness creep into bond markets. Uh, The US 10-year yield went above 1.6% recently, which in a historical sense, Um, is still a very low long-term interest rate, but relative to where it has been over the last 12 months, it does represent a significant uptick. And the reason why it's happening is because the markets are concerned that all of the stimulus, particularly in the United States, all of the pent-up demand in the system. And uh, we we know, for example, in the first nine months of last year, um, there was $3 trillion dollars in excess saving in the 21 richest countries in the world. Here in this country, we've seen an increase of 15 billion in household savings over the last 12 months. Okay, so there's massive pent up demand to come back into the system. Coupled with the fiscal and monetary stimulus in the system, the markets are concerned that we're going to see um, an upsurge in inflation. Um, And that's why bond yields are starting to tick up. And a number of central banks, um, the European Central Bank, the uh, Royal Bank of Australia and others have stepped in to try and keep bond yields down because they recognise that what would really lead to a crisis at this stage would be if bond yields start to rise, if borrowing costs start to go up, suddenly lots of countries, including Ireland, would have an unsustainable debt situation. So it's a delicate balancing act, but it's really important that bond yields are kept down as low as possible to facilitate what's going on at the minute. Yeah, final word to you, Mark. Uh, Jim mentioned the pent-up demand in Ireland, the fact that $15 billion in savings has been built up over the past uh, 12 months or so. I don't know if you're dying to get out and spend some of your uh, spare cash, uh, but are we going to see that the floodgates open, uh, essentially, when you know when things return to normal, if they ever do? Um, well, look, I suppose for the floodgates to open, I mean, like, to answer your first question, Karen, I don't think I'm a big contributor to that pile of excess state savings. Um, with, a, with a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old, um, I think um, you know there's a marginal propensity to consume there that I think has uh, taken a bit of a chunk out of my savings. But, um, you know, will the floodgates open? Well, a lot of it is going to depend on the public health situation as well um, um, and, and consumer confidence. It's all very well having money building up in a bank and, you know, having access to consumer credit and, 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 you know, the ability to go out and spend, but you also need um, the willingness. Um, and whilst the pandemic is a problem, whilst the public health factors are a problem, um, um, I think that's probably going to be very difficult um, for people to get out and spend that. They, they won't have the willingness, they won't have um, the confidence, um, um, and businesses may not have the confidence to offer the kind of services and, 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 and so on that you would need to, uh, uh, to have this big, you know, orgy of, of consumer spending. Um, so uh, a, a lot of it is going to depend still upon keeping this infernal pandemic under control um, and keeping the numbers down. Hopefully the vaccination program does that um, and, uh, and and hopefully we can get back to some level of normality. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, there's still an awful lot of twists and turns ahead, I think. Is there a concern about a fourth wave uh, this winter? Um, well, I, 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 there's obviously concerns about it. Um, um, 
Dr. Ronan Glynn said um, on Monday at Monday's uh, Nefert press conference, he said he said very clearly and very distinctly that he wasn't signalling a fourth wave. Um, so um, um, you know, where he, he was looking at what was going on uh, in the continent in Europe. I think what's going on in Europe at the moment is that they're becoming acquainted with the British variant of the virus that we became acquainted with so disastrously over Christmas and January. So we're a little bit possibly ahead of Europe in that sense. Um, I was on a conference call recently with um, the public health officials of Israel um, and, and they're certainly not anticipating a fourth wave. They have um, you know, probably close to 60% of their population vaccinated now, not fully vaccinated, um, but at, uh, close to 60% would have at least one dose. Um, and they've started reopening using a green pass. Um, and a green pass is effectively a passport to allow you into bars, allow you into restaurants, allow you into gyms and so on. And, um, and that's something that um, and might uh, uh, leach its way into European economies, even though there are clear um, ethical considerations around that, around, you know, stopping people from um, participating in the economy if they haven't had a vaccine. That's something that I think is, 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 is coming down the track. Um, and if there's some sort of a fourth wave or maybe not a fourth wave, but if the, if the public health situation is still causing serious operational difficulties for businesses uh, and for people and society and people getting around in general, then you, you might see something like a vaccine passport coming more um, uh, uh, into view. Um, so, um, yeah, that's a, that's a consideration for the future, I think. All right, we'll leave it there. Jim Parr and Mark Paul, thank you for joining Inside Business. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, I'll be talking to Gwen Layden of the Georgia Street Arcade about how they have weathered the pandemic. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, the Georgia Street Arcade in Central Dublin will be well known to those living in the capital for its eclectic mix of retailers and stallholders. Like every other retail business in the country, COVID has threatened the viability of the arcade, putting tenants to the pin of their collar. The Arcade is family owned and I'm joined now on the line by Gwen Layden to discuss their novel approach to weathering the storm. Uh, Gwen, you're very welcome to Inside Business. Perhaps you can just tell us how the Georgia Street Arcade has coped in the pandemic over the past 12 months. Okay, well, the Georgia Street Arcade has um, 42 businesses in it, 21 stores and 21 shops. So uh, for the first time since 1892, uh, I closed the arcade actually this time last year. This day last year, so one year ago to the day, and um, it had traded continuously since 1892, and that was the first time it shut its gates. And the impact was, well, you know, very early on, we decided back in 2007, you remember there was a recession, and we're a family business. We bought this shopping centre about 30 years ago, Dad bought it, and it was a pretty rundown shopping centre with probably very few um, units left, but he saw potential in it, and... Um, we began managing it and gradually just bringing businesses into the units. And those businesses did not need to have references. They didn't need to be big multiples. They didn't need to have uh, experience. They just needed to be decent people who had a passion for what they were doing. So we filled it now with 42 people. So when the recession in 07 came and when this pandemic came, we employed the same policy that we always do. And that is at first to support and carry the businesses if they need to be. That in the first instance, the most important thing is that the businesses survive. Uh, a city centre without businesses is just bricks. And a shop without a tenant, the talent is in the tenant. You know, so that needs to be the first thing. 
And um, in 07, we reduced the rents before the recession kicked in by a third right across the board. Uh, Dad and I spoke about it during Christmas and he said, look, I can see there's a, a difficult time coming down the line. Let's give them the break before they start to feel it. And it worked brilliantly. So everybody went into the 07 recession a little bit more comfortable. They had a few months before it really kicked in at a lower rent and we all survived. So the same here. Uh, we spoke about it, uh, Dad and I, and uh, the family were on board. And we took the decision to suspend rents for the lockdown um, because you can't charge rent if they're not making money. And it is, it's immoral, really, because uh, they're going to... Uh, you know, not have the money to pay you and they'll take it from perhaps their family savings, which isn't fair. We're just a family ourselves. So obviously it has now been a year. Uh, we charged rent in December was the only time I think we probably took full rent. And we have taken no rent when they're locked down and uh, kind of then we started off with 25%, then went up to 50% because the city isn't as busy as it used to be. Um, so effectively, we just tailor the rents that they that uh, are realistic and uh, we have taken it out of our own savings. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. It definitely is hurting. And dad is 77 and he's been fantastic. Uh, but uh, I don't see there's any other way. Uh, the alternative is the business closes and a shutter down is good for nobody. It's uh, a family left devastated. Their all they work for, their business is gone. It's, um, you know, a mother or father coming home. They have to have a job. Um, it is a drain on the exchequer. Um, so it's incumbent on us as landlords and building owners to make sure that somebody is using the building. Gwen, can I ask you, how much revenue have you lost as a result of your decision? Ooh, um, I suppose, look, I'd say um, probably... Uh, Certainly, four hundred thousand, half a million, yeah. And you know, it was, it was, it was dad's savings, effectively, yeah. And that's a big chunk of income for your family to have to swallow as a, as a result of all of this. Um, some landlords have taken a much different tack to your family. They've gone legal with their tenants. Can you understand why they've done that, or what's your view of uh, landlords who have taken a tough, uh, you know, a tough stance with their tenants during the lockdown? Well, you know what I have to say? It is desperately hurtful to everyone. I mean, to do that to a tenant is cruel. And, you know, I mean, uh, you know, whether they win, lose or draw, to hurt somebody like that who doesn't have the money to pay you and then force them into a legal case. Uh, it's easy for those companies who might be able to pay the legal fees. I think it's cruel. And I think that, you know, I mean, I know not everybody... When you go to meet your maker or whoever you reconcile your conscience with at the end of the day, and everyone probably should, it, you will. That is a very wrong thing to do. If somebody is hurting, put your arm around them. You know, I I, I don't use lawyers actually. Uh, I do most of my leases. We do them with. We agree them ourselves, and uh, and we trust each other. And I've yet to fall into a legal dispute with anybody in over thirty years, because uh, if somebody is hurting. Put your arm around them, come up with a resolution, and you and the person will be better off. Um, uh, I, I find that policy really, I'm so sorry for the people who are dragged into that. That's all I can say. Yeah. Gwen, you have 40 businesses, I think, in the arcade. Um, all, I think all of your pitches are let, essentially. 
I'm just wondering when the dust settles and all of this, when we get back to the new normal and people, the economy opens up and people start going out again, what's the future of retail going to be like in the city centre? Well, the arcade future is going to be extremely bright because it is an absolutely beautiful building. Um, it is as it was in 1892. And aside from there, I think that people love to meet people. I know I go out every day and I go to my place, Gleason's, and I have my coffee on the wall and I say hello to people. We like to interact. You know, I think it's the most natural and needed human thing is to go out and interact. Um, I'd be totally optimistic about the future of the city. And uh, particularly if their businesses uh, they really put love into their businesses. You can know when you walk into a bookshop, like I've got a bookshop there now, Antiquarian Books, he's been there for 34 years, okay? And he has every book from more gone stories to everything. And he absolutely adores what he does. Who doesn't want to walk into a shop where a person who has invested their whole love of some article or some dresswear or some book or some juice or some travel agent... Who wouldn't want to walk in there? Um, I'm very optimistic about the future city centre. I'm very optimistic about shopping. People have done it since the 1800s. We're there since 1892. There'll be some other 42 people here in 100 years' time, please God. If it's going since 1892, it's not going to stop in 2020. That's what I'd say to you. Yeah. Right, OK. Because obviously a lot of people have switched to e-commerce, haven't they, in lockdown? A lot of people have discovered... Uh, online shopping and the benefits, uh, the convenience of it, uh, I suppose, and the fact that you can get lower prices in a lot of cases. I'd agree with that, but I think people shop a lot more, you know, so um, that, you know, I mean, uh, people look for a lot more things now. So what shops offer is an experience of going out and, you know, interacting, choosing something, looking at it, enjoying the ambience of the city. Certainly the, the units that I've let lately are leisure, a lot of food, um, you know, a lot of eating out that will still be going uh, in the city, in my view, you know, and I think people might be shopping a lot more, but they still want the other shops. And the online is just tons and tons of stuff that people are filling their houses with. But I still think that they will want to go into the city for a day out. Gwen, a big question about market rents in Dublin that they really, you know, gotten out of control. That's what a lot of tenants would say anyway. Um, and a lot of landlords, they obviously have bills to pay as well. So we've had the we've had plenty of disputes between landlords and tenants. Just wondering if we need a new system um, for uh, landlord-tenant relationships going forward, and whether the government should be involved in this. Um, I would say that um, you know, I mean, leases really, uh, you know, long leases with uh, you know, I mean, I'm all for uh, break clause at any time you want, you know. That'd be what I put into every lease. Break clause at any time either party wishes. That solves everything because nobody should be tied into something. You shouldn't have control over somebody's life just because they signed a lease. Um, you know, and that's that would allow freedom. That would allow market rents to be applied at any given moment. And if you have a system where uh, you can, uh, 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 no fault break option to either party is what it's called. Okay, no fault break option. Okay, so that people can leave their leases if they want to. Then the market it dictates, you know, I studied economics and supply and demand and equilibrium will always uh, result if you allow the market forces to dictate. So just, I would say, no fault break options to people in all leases. And if a landlord is decent, they'll go with that. And if the tenant is decent, they'll go with that. And then there's no need for any problems. That's the solution, in my view. 
Gwen, I have to ask you, have you been online shopping yourself in the pandemic? No, <laughs> actually. Uh, no, no, I'm not an online, I'm not a shopper really, but um, the kids have got like runners that they needed. But uh, to be honest with you, you know, then they come and they're not the right. So I wouldn't be a big fan of online. I know our tra- our tenants went online and made an effort at it. But, you know, I mean, uh, the, the bookman put up 770 different books for his online offering. You know, if it's all um, generic stuff and they're all the same, but if you're looking for something a bit different, um, but I'm not a big online fan. Well, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't think I've ever bought anything online, actually. Yeah, no, I haven't. Maybe I'm too old. <laughs> and finally, Gwen, if there was one thing the government could do for your business or for your tenants uh, in the arcade, uh, you know, as we as we move towards reopening the economy, what would it be? What would you suggest to them? Um, I think the government have been very supportive. Uh, now, there isn't any support to landlords, but I'm not going to be crying about it because I don't think anybody's going to give us pity. I think we were probably the only group that got no support supports from the government but they probably didn't expect landlords to support their tenants. Um, look, I think the government have done everything they can do, really. I just hope now that, um, you know, I, I would recommend the supports don't go on too long. I think you need to get the economy back. You know, I would caution against uh, leaving the supports in place too long because people will get into the habit of staying at home. It's better that they come out and open up their shops. And uh, that's what I'd say. Don't let the supports go on too long. I know I won't be popular for saying that, but um, it just encourage people back out. Okay, great. Well, listen, Gwen Layden, thank you for joining Inside Business. We wish you continued success and your retailers continued success in George's Arcade and hopefully it'll be around for many, many, many years to come. Please, God. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Jim Power, Mark Paul and Gwen Layden. This week's show was produced by Declan Conlon. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed each day on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 